The scripture this morning is coming from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Ephesians chapter 2, 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so make so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. About this time last year, a study was conducted in the U.S. just to gauge how Americans are feeling about unity in their country. Now, the good news is that about 80% of those respondents all answered the same way. So they at least 80% of Americans agreed. The bad news is those 80% of Americans agreed that the country disagrees, perhaps more than it ever has in the past. So said in another way, depending on who you listen to, Apparently, as Americans, we're divided over just about everything except the fact that we're divided. Or said in another way, we, the only thing we can agree on is the simple fact that in most cases, we're probably going to disagree with one another. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time this morning laying out all the reasons why people in our country find reasons to be divided from one another or find reasons to be irritated or to separate an us from a them. Certainly, we know that our country has our fair share of that, don't we? We have some that are historic and we have some that seem like new things pop up every day for us to find reasons that we dislike one another or that we have this idea that we are so divided from one another. And this morning, I don't want to reduce the gospel down to a, a tool for social reform and say, just to reduce the gospel down and say, well, it's meant just to solve arguments between people and it's just meant to uh, bring resolution from conflict and we can have unity in our country and everybody put your arms around each other and say, well, how great is everything here? But I do think that in a nation right now, in a time and place where peace and love and compassion seem to be in short supply, I think that we as Christians have a very unique opportunity. There is a door of opportunity opened to us to show people how the gospel can bring us real peace. To show how the gospel can take a, a, the current state of things as they are now and today. To take that as an opportunity, a window of opportunity to show people the amazing hope and peace that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of message that we're going to read about in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2 that Will read for us just a moment ago, starting in verse 14, he says that he himself, Jesus is our peace. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But as we begin our discussion together, I have really just two main things to say this morning and that's it. The first thing, I want to look at what our message of peace is. I want to take a look at that message of peace and hopefully we can see how it is uniquely suited to bring some real healing to a time and place that really needs it. 
But in the second place, I want to look at how we can effectively communicate that to the people around us. So if we have such a great message, such a message of peace, it it doesn't do us any good if we can't get it out. If we can't get it to people and show them how this can actually bring peace to them. But let's start here in chapter 2 and verse 14. Now at first blush, it might look like when Paul says he himself is our peace. And in verse 13, we know that he's talking about Jesus. And at first glance, it might look like Paul is saying that Jesus brings us personal inner peace because of our salvation. And he absolutely does, doesn't he? Don't we have a profound inner peace because of what Jesus Christ has done for us? Don't we have a kind of peace that's very difficult to explain to those who don't have it? Don't we have a peace that tells us that no matter what comes our way in this life, we know that nothing, according to Romans 8, can separate us from the love of Christ? Can't we have peace knowing that anything that on this side of eternity afflicts us now is not worth comparing to the glory of what's waiting on us in the future glory that God has prepared for us? Can't we have a peace that passes all understanding? In Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, Paul tells the Philippians, Let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Certainly. We have the most kind, the most profound kind of peace in our hope that we have in Christ. But I wonder if that's exactly what Paul is trying to bring out here when he says that Jesus is our peace. And we can figure that out by following, as many of you I'm sure here know, I know most of the Faulkner students uh, from times gone by would remember uh, from Cecil May's Bible interpretation class, the three most important rules of reading your Bible I'm assuming a lot of us know it. Uh, Context, context, and context. Basically, just read what's around it. So let's just back up and look in verse 11 and see what Paul has to say. And I think we can pick up on the idea of the kind of peace that Paul has in mind. And we'll take special note of some of these terms that he uses. But he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, by the time we get here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's given them his opening, his greeting, and his thanksgiving at the beginning of chapter 2. It's a passage that probably a lot of us know very well. That's where Paul talks about grace by faith. It's where he talks about the fact that we are saved not just by our works, not by the things that we do. We don't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps in the eyes of God. No, Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul tells us in the first part of Ephesians chapter 2 that we've all fallen short. We've all been disobedient. We're all in equal standing with God in terms of sin, but we're also in equal standing with God in terms of opportunity for salvation. It is by grace through faith that we are saved, not just by our track record behind us. It's, we're not leaving out the work of God in our salvation. And then when he gets to verse 11, he starts to make a distinction. He says, those among you who were once Gentiles. 
And I don't think we need much of a history lesson on Gentiles this morning. We know that they're the people who are not part of the nation of Israel, right? And look at what Paul, look at some of the words that Paul uses about them. He's going to use three in particular. He's going to say, you were separated from God. You were alienated from the nation of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, what's interesting is that Paul is going to be building here the divide between those who, before Christ, were following God according to the old law and those who were not. And certainly Paul's going to say that the Gentiles were separated from God, right? But notice who else he says they're separated from. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, speaking to the Gentiles. You're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So not only are the Gentiles separated from God himself, before in Christ they have access to the same saving blood of Christ that all the Jews had, they're also alienated and separated from the Jewish people. There's one group of people here. There's another group of people here. For so long, they had had intense Division. The divide between Jew and Gentile was not just a simple civil disagreement about this or that type of policy or about what kind of clothes you ought to wear to church or this type or that or the other little argument. This was not just some little civil disagreement between Jew and Gentile. Rather, from the Jewish perspective, this was a matter of keeping oneself clean. Let's illustrate it this way. I doubt that many of us here today would actually feel guilty or feel dirty on a spiritual level if we sat down and had a meal with someone who was not a Christian. Or if we entered the home of someone who is not a Christian. I doubt that we would actually literally feel dirty about ourselves, morally speaking, just because we spent time with that type of person. Well, you might know from Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 when Peter goes to see Cornelius. Which, by the way, let's, let's build a little context here. When Peter goes to meet with Cornelius, who Acts or Luke will tell us in Acts chapter 10 is a Gentile, although he's called a God-fearer, he has respect for God. Peter goes to see Cornelius, this Gentile. Well, why does he go see him? Well, previously in the book of Acts, you have Peter receiving a direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. He receives a direct revelation in a vision where you might remember this blanket comes down and on the blanket are all these types of foods that were considered unclean according to the Jews. It makes you dirty. It makes you ceremonially unclean to take part in these foods. Jesus tells Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, well, absolutely not. I I can't do this. This is, I've never eaten anything unclean. I've never touched anything unclean in my whole life. I can't eat this. Jesus tells him, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. Peter goes to Cornelius' house, knowing what God has made clean, I cannot call unclean. When he gets into the house in verse 38, you can see what he says. You know that it's not really lawful for me to even be here. 
It's not really okay for me as a Jew to be in your house, a Gentile. You see, you're not going to find that law anywhere in the Old Testament. But the traditions of the Jewish religious leaders by this time, being so careful to keep their righteousness, to keep their cleanliness, spiritually speaking, they said it is not lawful, according to our tradition, for any of us to enter into the home of these kinds of people, because if we do... Will be dirty, will be unclean. And it doesn't just stop there, actually. At the court, in the temple itself, there's a court of the Gentiles, and then you get into the court of the temple proper. There's literally a wall there keeping the Gentiles out. There's an inscription that's been found. The inscription said this No foreigner shall enter beyond this point. And it goes on to say, Whoever does will have himself to thank for his ensuing death. You see, there was real division. There was real separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. Not just a civil kind of disagreement. There's real historical division going on here that it sometimes was worse than it was at others. And in fact, I think we talk about passages like Galatians 3.23, where we have Paul saying, In Christ there is no distinction. There is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. And we say, well, the early church definitely had all, all these problems of division figured out. Because look what Paul has to say. Well, let's think for a second about what Peter did in the book of Acts. Folks, it took a direct revelation from Jesus himself to Peter the apostle. And then it took Peter the apostle going to the house of Cornelius and seeing the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Then it took Peter in a meeting with the other apostles in Jerusalem explaining to them what had happened For letters to go out saying Gentiles can be brought into the church. This, if there's ever been a divide between people, historically speaking, this is certainly one of them. But what does Paul have to say about this? He says now in verse 13. So beforehand, you're separated from God, you're separated from Israel, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have now been brought near. For he himself is our peace. As Paul is talking to Gentiles here. And he's been saying, you were once far off. And now he says, he himself is our peace. Has Paul suddenly become a Gentile? I don't think so. He brings us peace. Here's how he's done it. He has made us both one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Well, are we talking about the dividing wall of hostility between us and God? Or are we talking about a dividing wall of hostility that comes in between people in Christ? Are we talking about all the reasons we have to stay to stay divided and to stay, you guys stay in your spot, you guys are the them, and we are the us? Is he talking about a dividing wall of hostility that might have even literally been standing in the temple, keeping these people from the presence of God? He himself is our peace. He has made us both. He has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I think the gospel is so uniquely suited to bring healing and peace in a time and in a place that seems to be lacking both because it teaches 
the most important kind of equality in at least three areas. What we learn here from Ephesians chapter 2, look in verse 17. He came and preached to you who were far off. He came and he preached to the Gentiles. He also came and preached peace to those who were near. So through him, and again we have this same little phrase here, we both, both of us, Jew and Gentile alike, through the cross, through Jesus, we have peace because for both of us, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So look what happens because of this. In verse 19, we have this idea that beforehand they were strangers, they were aliens, they were separated from God and also from the actual people in the nation of Israel. Look what he has to say about it in verse 19. So then, because of this, you are not strangers and aliens anymore. You are no longer strangers. You are no longer aliens. You are no longer separated. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. And members of the household of God. Which in 1 Timothy, Paul says is the church. So in Christ then, even this great divide between Jew and Gentile, even the hostility between Jew and Gentile can be broken down and Christ can bring peace between these two groups of people. How does it do that? Well, the gospel unites us, as we said, in three major ways. First of all, we are all beloved children of God, aren't we? John 3.16, we know this. For God so loved the world, this is how much God loved the world, that He gave His only Son, He sent His only Son to die for all of us. He sent His only Son to die for you, He sent His only Son to die for me, and guess what? He sent His only Son to die for the people who haven't gotten out of bed yet on a Sunday morning. When Christ is being nailed to the cross, He doesn't... Say, I'm enduring this only for the people that love me. What does he say? Father, forgive them, the ones who are driving the nails into his hands. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you see, the gospel doesn't really leave much room for us to assume that we are better than anybody else, does it? It doesn't leave much room for superiority of one group of people over another. Because after all, God loved people enough, all people, no matter what group we're talking about here, God loved all people enough to send His Son to die for them. So then, in the Gospel, we don't really have room to say, well, I know God loved them enough to send His Son literally to die for them, but God doesn't expect me to do anything for Him. God loved them enough to leave heaven and to become God in the flesh. God loved them enough to become man and then not to be treated like a king, but to be tortured and put brutally to death by his own creation. That's how much God loved these people, but I can't stand them. That's how God, that's how much God loved these people, but I'm not going to eat with them. I'm not going to be seen with them. Never mind the parable of the lost coin. Never mind the parable of the lost sheep. Never mind the parable of the lost son. Never mind the fact that Jesus reached out to those who were sick. 
Never mind all that stuff. Never mind the fact that God loves them. They're them. And we're the us. We know John 13, 34 to 35, where Jesus says, There's a new commandment that I give to you. And we all know it, right? To love others as I have loved you. And he says, By this, people will know. By this, people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Certainly the church is marked by our dedication to the truth, right? We're marked by our dedication to God's word. We're marked by our dedication to the first century church, to the faith that has been handed down from the days of the apostles. Yes, we are marked by that. But it's interesting that Jesus tells his disciples, here's how people will know if you are my disciples or not. Here's how the rest of the world is going to be able to tell if you are my disciples or not, that you have love for one another, that you love as I have loved you. So the gospel unites us in the sense that we're all beloved children of God. It also unites us in the sense that even as believers, believers are not superior in any way to non-believers. Here's what I mean by that. Believers need Christ just as bad as anybody that doesn't believe in Christ. Can we agree with that? Believers need Jesus just as bad. If, uh, if you have a believer and you take Jesus away from them, where do they stand? They stand in the exact same spot as someone who doesn't have Christ. So we have real reason to be united and to be together in the gospel because, yes, God loves us all as His created children. We're all made in His image. God loves us all. We, in turn, must love one another. He also tells us very clearly in the opening chapters of Romans, and he builds all the way up to chapter 3 and verse 23, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we have no reason to look down our nose at anybody else because we're really no better off than they are without Christ. And we can take them to Christ, but we know that we're no better off than they are without Him. And then finally, in the very next verse of Romans, let's flip over there. We all know Romans three twenty three. I don't think we talk very much about the verse that immediately follows. He says there's no distinction. So there's equality here. There's no distinction. There's no division. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified by His grace as a gift. Now we think of Galatians three twenty three. If there's no distinction in Christ, we all have equal access to the Father. It doesn't matter who you are, what country you were born in, how much money you've had, any, any of those kind of factors that we say we don't really look at, but a lot of times we still look at. In Christ, we all have equal access to the Father if we submit to Him in loving obedience. So then, since salvation is based on the gift of God, and not where any of us were born, or not the color of any of our skin, or not the amount of money that sits in any of our bank accounts, because none of those things matter to God, you see, in the church, you can find real peace. He 
How is Jesus our peace? Yes, He brings us the personal peace we talked about earlier. But Paul, as he speaks of the divide between Jew and Gentile, and says, He Himself is our peace. Folks, if God can bring, if Jesus, through His work on the cross, can bring peace between the Jews and the Gentiles, He can bring peace between me and you. Doesn't matter who you are, or where you come from, or who I am, or where I've come from, or what I've done, or what you've done. If God can bring peace through the cross to the Jews and the Gentiles, He can absolutely bring peace to you and me. He can bring peace to you and the people sitting on the other side of the church building from you. He can bring peace to you and the people in here that you might not even know that come from such a different place than you do. If the gospel is equipped to cross that gap, what gaps can it not cross? So then I think somebody might object and say, well, you're trying to just say that the, the gospel, or that's just the key to like social reform and bring everybody to like, like we said earlier, everybody put your arms around each other. Well, if we've read from Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, we know that's not what we're saying because Jesus actually says, do not think that I have come to bring, guess what, peace. He says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He says, whoever doesn't, whoever doesn't despise even his own father and mother, whoever loves his children more than he loves me, is not worthy of me. Anybody who seeks his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. So we're not saying this morning that Jesus came for the sole reason to remove conflict from everybody. He didn't do that. And in fact, sometimes following Christ can create some conflict in places of your, wife, of your life. But what I am saying is that for those of us who have accepted Christ, for those of us who are believers, we have what we can take. We have this message that we can take to a community, take to a world that really needs it. A message that is so powerful to bridge any gap, any gap that brings anything that is not peace. Jesus did not come just to solve disagreements. He came to seek and save the lost. But by seeking and saving the lost, what Paul writes in Ephesians 2 happens. We're no longer far off. The two are made one in Christ. So I believe that the gospel then is uniquely suited to bring peace because it teaches that we share value in the sight of God regardless of who we are. And it can bring peace because it encourages us to always put one another's needs above our own. And let's go to the second and final major point here this morning. So if we have this kind of message, if we really think we are well suited to actually help out with a lot of the problems going on around us, how do we get it out? How, how can we show it? How can we teach it to people? And there's a lot of different ways I'd imagine that we can do that. And I don't claim to be so wise as to know the absolute best way to do that. But I do know at least one way that can be very effective. We can teach it by doing it. We can teach it by showing it. We can teach the rest of the world around us that peace is possible through Christ by showing them that we actually have peace in Christ. By making it not something that's just in our book that we say, this would be great if we could do it. But come to church with us for a little bit and listen to the way we talk about each other. Come to church with us for a little bit and listen to the way we talk about the way so-and-so dressed. 
Come to church with us and listen to the way we talk about how so-and-so's uh, kids were acting. Come into church with us for a while and let us, show us, let us show you all the ways that we've built dividing walls of hostility between us and everyone else. Oh, and by the way, yeah, yeah, we can bring peace if everybody will follow Christ. If we want to teach this message to the people around us, I would argue that the very first thing we have to do is actually live it. We should legitimately expect, not just hope in some abstract sense of the word, we should legitimately expect to see hostility die in the church. At least Paul did in Ephesians chapter 4. You can go look towards the tail end of the chapter in Ephesians 4. He says there are all these things in the old life that are supposed to die. Included in them are anger, hate, and malice. Clamor. All those kinds of things are in the old life. Guess what's in the new life? Tenderheartedness, forgiveness, love, those types of things are in the new life. So then, in the church, I believe that we can legitimately expect to see hostility die. And if there is anywhere on the planet that we can expect to see a community without malice and hate, it's the church. Because in Romans 19, or excuse me, in Romans 14 and verse 19, we don't have time to discuss the full chapter, but there Paul's dealing with an, an issue of contention in the church. And he's trying to tell them how to handle their contention with one another. And in verse 19, he says something that is so eye-opening. He says, let us then seek what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. In the church, we are to be seeking for peace and mutual upbuilding. Not for reasons to argue and complain and grumble about one another. In a church, or excuse me, in a world where peace and love are getting harder and harder to find, the church must be a city on a hill. The church must be a light in the darkness. So I think we have some difficult questions to ask. Do we say that Christ brings peace? Do we say that we're all united in Christ and that there is no distinction? But then we harbor hostility towards somebody because of a past offense. We refuse forgiveness to somebody keeping the wall of hostility up. Do we harbor hostility towards someone for any of a number of reasons that we could enumerate this morning? Do we deny compassion to those to, to others simply because maybe they are born in a different place or born with a different situation in life? Basically, because they're not like us. These are difficult questions to ask, but I think these are difficult questions with a simple solution. According to Paul, through the saving work of the cross, Christ has united us all. There is no gap that is too broad to be closed by the peace that comes in Christ. I want to close with this. Several months ago, we were blessed to have a missionary with us. His name was John Mark Smith. He came in May. He came to speak to us about the Eastern European missions. And there was one thing that he mentioned that has stuck with me since then that I think is the most appropriate way to conclude this kind of discussion. Brother John Mark brought up a source of division that's been influencing our planet for about 1,400 years now. It's the division between two groups of Muslims, the Sunni and the Shia. And we could get into their historical reason for their divide, but it's a very intense, religiously motivated divide that has been violent for many, many years. And in fact, it's causing problems even 
today. And so many from Syria are having to flee. And what Brother John Mark was telling us, they have many Syrians who have fled from their country for fear of their lives and have come to where they are working in Turkey. Now, just a few hours ago, and I think Turkey's pretty far ahead of us uh, in the time zone. So just a few hours ago in Turkey, you had a group of people sitting in a room, sitting in a room doing something very similar to what we're doing now. And at first glance, it might not appear like anything extraordinary is going on in the room. Of course, we know that the opportunity to worship God is an extraordinary opportunity. We're not making light of that. But you wouldn't see anything you wouldn't expect to see out of, out of the ordinary. But if you look a little bit closer, Brother John Mark said after one of their Bible studies, he spoke to two men who were from Syria. He found out they're from the same area of Syria. He asked them, did you guys know each other before you, before you moved here or did you just meet here with us? He said those two men exchanged a glance and said, we hated each other. My family hated his family. I was raised to hate him. In Syria, we were enemies. In Christ... We are brothers. If you don't hear anything else that we have said this morning, if the Sunni and the Shia, if the Jews and the Gentiles can be united in Christ, then so can we. And praise be to God for His indescribable gift. So if you're here this morning... And you've seen this type of hostility in your own life. And you know you need some reform. Then let us help you. Let us pray with you. Let us pray for you. Let us encourage you. If you're here this morning and you have not accepted Christ. And you've not become a part of the household of God. That offers peace with God first and foremost. You have the opportunity not just to have peace with other people in Christ, regardless of their background. You have the opportunity to have peace with God Himself, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. And as those Christians in Acts chapter 2 asked Paul, when when they were convicted in their heart that Jesus was the Son of God, and that their sins had put Him on the cross, they needed something to be forgiven of their sins, they asked Peter, "What, what should we do? And he said, repent, change, convert, and be baptized, every one of you. For the remission of your sins. That same offer stands to all of us here this morning. So if you're here this morning and there's anything you need, I hope you'll come now as we sing together.